This episode talks about mental health and the stigmatizations around mental health. If this topic makes you uncomfortable, do not listen. Eli, secondary English education major. I'm M. I'm a secondary mathematics major with a double degree in mathematics. I'm Preston. I will be double majoring in philosophy and history. And I'm Simon, a philosophy major. Alrighty. So, um, our topic is about male mental illness and the stigmatizations around those things and mostly like how toxic masculinity pulls into all of those things all together and we're talking about this because i recently read some articles about the doctor who actor christopher excelson and how he was dealing with uh his mental illness and depression as well as his like uh anorexia while filming the show doctor who and everything so going on that it just like made me think about how like males are more stigmatized with mental illness in general so like i looked some things up and from the american foundation for suicide prevention it's been proven that men die from suicide four times more than women as well as men are 70 percent of suicides altogether in the u.s as well as suicide being the leading cause of death in the U.S. Tenth. Tenth. Tenth leading cause of death in the U.S. And has history. Alright, so... <clears throat> stigmatization of mental health is considered one of our greatest public health challenges. Um, the World Health Organization considers stigma as the hidden burden because it's often difficult to identify and is often concealed. Um, stigmatization is a complex combination of society and psychology that works to disadvantage and limit people who have a mental illness through labeling, discrimination, stereotyping, and systemic loss of power. Uh, mental health and mental stigmatization has its history going way back. Um, early Greek writings link mental health uh, with shame, loss of faith, and humiliation. In the 1400s, the earliest asylums were meant to provide protection for the people with mental illness. Um, in the late 1800s, we have the early asylum movement, which was based on a humanistic ideal. Humanism is the idea that these people deserved to be treated with compassion. This form of compassionate psychology involved re-educating patients in a proper moral location. Medicinal therapeutics at the time included bleeding, purges, opium, and heavy, unrestricted use of punishment. Compassion therapy was short-lived, though, and asylums were soon degraded as human warehouses where patients were restricted from society, often against their own will. There are many countries where these asylums are the preferred method of treatment still. In the 19th century, most physicians promoted that mental illness was caused by a hereditary dysfunction. This led to little search for treatment and cure plans and more validation that mental illness caused individuals to be de degenerates and therefore validate asylum conditions. These ideas of hereditary degenerates fueled the wartime eugenics movement. 
stereotyping beliefs and stigmatizing attitudes continue to be a documented problem among professionals worldwide today. Going into just conversations and everything, uh, why do you guys think it's considered like such a shameful thing to show emotion? I think well, there's a lot to unpack here. There's so much history that comes to my mind, uh, and, and it's worth taking into, taking the history into account on, on its practical terms and, uh, as far as uh, the benefits to different types of treatments that we've been talking about and the cons. And I think these uh, attitudes uh, that we that people tend to have towards mental illness are reflective of the treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, so <clears throat> if a society is more prone to, say, label degeneracy as something that's hereditary, then you will see that reflected in its, in, in its treatments. Um, there's The United States is probably one of the most interesting countries that uh, is a good case study for, for this issue. Um, but without, without delving too much into history, um, the stigma behind mental illness is indeed systemic. And I, I can think of numerous things that affect and, uh, more than other sexes and genders in society. Uh, and with that being said, I, I think there is some defense to masculinity itself still that's uh, more crucial now because of uh, now we're able people are more cognizant of stigma so because we're more cognizant, cognizant of the stigma we have a better uh, ability and probably a, a duty a moral duty to to champion positive masculinity Alrighty, this is where I go, and uh, this is where I agree with John Stuart Mill on his idea of how custom limits liberty. Um, basically, he Mill goes on to state that there are two things that limit liberty of individuals: it is the government and it is the tyranny of majority. He takes a lot from Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America. Um, by tyranny of the majority, he means the custom and beliefs of the majority of individuals in a society. And I would say within the United States, taking on its history and what goes on with the stigmatization of males and how males are supposed to go and uh, express themselves in terms of being uh, this patriarchal figure, head, uh, a breadwinner, a individual who can't show emotion, mm -hmm. who has to be part of this ideal free labor system that developed in the 1830s. Um, you, The United States developed this through the free labor system of the 1830s where you have to be able to support yourself and go through the processes of getting past your current social class and with that being said it with that being said that is the custom of the United States still I, I would argue today that we have to be able to get through and uh climb the ladder essentially mm -hmm. and with that being said a male was the primary figurehead of the free labor system 
being uh, or the free labor yeah the free labor system developing in the 1830s and uh, further developing into the American dream and with that um, the the stigmatization of males and showing emotion was a bad thing because it shows weakness and weakness um, was unacceptable in a society where you need to climb the ladder and so that is why I believe it is shameful in the United States to show emotion as a male because it's weakness Mm-hmm. And custom views, uh, the United States custom views uh, emotion as a form of weakness, showing that you won't be able to climb that ladder due to your uh, emotional states. Especially because, like, if you show emotion or you do anything, like, feminine or show anything like that, you could be considered, like, gay or you could be considered, like, you know, in that community. And oftentimes the toxic masculinity of, like, overly aggressive straight males it's often like i can't be seen like this i have to be i have to be super straight and narrow can't show emotion because that's feminine you know you ever seen uh you ever seen the movie cruel intentions i have not okay well this uh this this archetype that you're describing is it's based on a book by voltaire actually Mm. um but the this it's I think it's in a high school based setting and it's like all it's deviantly sexual this film uh, but this the quarterback of the football team is a closeted homosexual but he is but he hides it by being ultra um, straight so, so to speak mm-hmm. so that's the archetype that you're describing there it's a good example you should check out the movie it's all right and that's what plays into John Stuart Mill's idea of the tyranny of the majority because uh, the tyranny of the majority makes people change their beliefs and their thoughts to make them fit this stigma and fit what society deems of what a male should be. Mm-hmm. And that is why uh, males are essentially uh, should not be showing emotion. And that is a perfect case study and a perfect example to show or and express how the tyranny of a majority affects a singular individual. Mm-hmm. Um, something really interesting to mention about um, like this hyper masculinized uh, world that we live in is we've now seen these vocal patterns arise called uh, vocal fry, um, and it's really common ar- among men to hear this vocal fry, and it's actually where they like lower their voice, and you almost hear like this c- cluttering noise. Um, I actually can't do vocal fry. I've tried, and I don't experience it. Uh, I'm sure if I lowered my voice enough, I could, but I don't have that range. Um, But it's actually more common among men, but we're now seeing this uh, almost eradication of it through vocal coaches because it's something that vocal coaches find to be a nuisance and a problem. I I myself am not familiar with vocal fry, but I, I wonder if that's actually a response to, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm overreaching here but but i wonder if it's a sociological response um because you made the point that we live in a hyper masculine society i i wouldn't agree with you entirely on that i think society is becoming more and more uh, effeminate in different ways and perhaps uh men are feeling challenged or young boys are feeling challenged for for, for being born with what is it xy chromosomes that they they need to talk like this or something like that <laughs> so I'm wondering if it's a response to, or I'm wondering if, if you guys think it, 
uh, the argument that any of this is any hypermasculinity is a response to an increasingly effeminate society. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's a response to just because um, I've been doing a lot of research about this for a paper for my Anthropology 103 course on linguistic anthropology. Um, and it's actually interesting because the vocal fry only came to the forefront after women started picking it up and radio talk hosts started getting complaints from men about vocal fry and upspeak, um, which are two opposite ends of the linguistic variety. Um, and they started getting complaints about the way their voice sounds on both of these ends. But we can record vocal fry all the way back. Um, the first recording of it is in uh, European men and it's more common among young men as well. So I wouldn't say it's a response to hyper-masculinize things, but I think it is a response to trying to be more masculine. So are you, say, are you saying that uh, with that example that maybe women are trying to become more masculine in society and, and exact, is the opposite of what Simon is suggesting? Um, I would say that uh, especially vocal fry is a way for women to try and demand their power because the opposite end is upspeak and it makes you sound questioning as if you're not quite sure uh, whether or not your declarative sentences are sentences and not questions or at least that's the way it's been proposed and so women adopting this vocal fry is almost like an, a, a claiming of power like they're claiming I deserve to be here too I think so vocal fry is essentially a be, being used by the this women in these examples as a means to show power and say, hey, I have the ability to do this too. Um, in As a theoretical approach, yes. I mean, none of the linguists actually have a definite answer on that. Um, it's all just theorized because you can't really pinpoint why somebody started to adopt these vocal tics. <laughs> so it's interesting. It sounds like we've shifted uh, from vocal fry affecting mm, boys or men to women and girls. Am I following? Do we want to backtrack? Yeah. Why don't we or go to the next question? Go to the next question. All right. Go on to the next question. Uh, what aspects of toxic masculinity makes talking about mental illness so hard? Well, first I have to ask because I'm un unaware of how everyone here would define toxic masculinity. How do you, you Eli, and M define toxic masculinity? And how do you, Simon, uh, define toxic masculinity? So I would define toxic masculinity as like um, a hyper-masculated man who refuses to show like any emotion and is just like, the only emotion that they ever like actually show is like pure anger stuff like that people who like are very like oh i can't do that it makes me seem like i'm a homosexual things like that mostly just making it seem like you know the stereotypical like bigoted super hyper masculinity <clears throat> super like the stereotypical like man you know <clears throat> Alrighty. um so I mean, my definition of toxic masculinity kind of follows along the same lines. Um, especially, though, I like to focus on the fact that the, these cultural norms we have for men are really harmful. Um, 
especially when it comes to normalizing violence through the sayings of boys will be boys when we're talking about regard, uh, bullying and aggression and even sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, this idea that men are socially dominant and that it bleeds into um, being violent and the fact that being socially dominant leads into being violent is kind of where toxic masculinity forms for me. Um, I think this is, uh, Eli and M have pretty good ideas on the table. Uh, I think Eli's definition of toxic masculinity is more of an example of what I would root it down to. And I think M's uh, definition of toxic masculinity is sort of the logical conclusion of how I define it. So I would define toxic masculinity as degenerative, biologically-oriented habits or social customs. Which is, right. like, uh, like a biologically-oriented habit could be, like, peeing while you're standing up because, you know, men have urinals in their restrooms or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or a social custom would be boys will be boys. Like, like those are examples of it. So, so things that are typically pertinent to men that are degenerative rather than progenerative yeah um that is toxic masculinity and indeed i think it could apply to femininity as well well in that case i i have to ask um what is degenerative what is where do you draw the line of where degenerative begins and where uh progenerative right right Mm -hmm. yeah begins or ends yeah That, that that's a good question um because uh, there's a lot of different ways you could take it, but I think uh, the the focus in my use of degenerative and progenerative behaviors is um, it starts off like uh, evolutionarily, biologically, I guess, uh, in terms of being progenitive to the species, and then now in a more developed society, uh, being progenitive socially. Uh, being able to contribute rather than detract uh, from the human species and its society. And so the line would be drawn uh, in the <laughs> in uh, practice, whatever, whatever is. I guess you could be very utilitarian about this and, and say that this detracts from society or this or in terms of life, like killing someone would be degenerative. Um, so uh, the the line is drawn in outcome and I think M's uh, idea of social dominance is is a very good example of how uh, the intent to be progenitive has led to some hubris and which is now becoming degenerative a dominance hierarchy is not uh, reflective of merit in society or what people can do. Mm. So um, I think that's a very de- that's a degenerative and an example. If we take all of these traits that we talked about and lead it back to the question, what aspects of toxic masculinity make it so hard for males to talk about mental illness? Well. In this case, if we talk about the examples of that everyone's uh, been throwing around the table in terms of dominance, um, I going back to kind of the weakness and how a, our American society has developed, I believe uh, when we 
think about dominance, um, when we talk about mental illness, it brings about weakness and shows weakness as an individual, and that weakness hurts dominance, the dominance aspect of toxic masculinity. So if you talk about mental illness, if an individual has mental illness, a male perhaps, um, it we can't talk they would be less inclined to talk about their mental illness and try to hide it because it weakens them and makes them appear weak in society so in that case um yeah that's what i have <laughs> it sounds very um animalistic yeah weakness predator prey almost Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think those are uh, abstractions i think these are these are terms that we've used to abstract just the gathering of resources in society like our basic needs Um, we're so involved in everyone's business and the human race has always been involved in each other's business that we have these ideas of dominance where it's perhaps irrelevant Uh, i think a lot of dominance boils down to irrelevancy and hubris uh, mm-hmm. and it's easy to to for that to happen i mean we're emotional creatures which is interesting i think uh, uh to to bring it back to the question though uh one of the things that boils down to why to- toxic masculinity is so stigmatized is just the mere physiological processes that occur when someone's upset or um, in having emotion uh, when you cry your face gets flushed and your eyes are red or, or you blush when you get embarrassed you know I think a, a good example of what's degenerative about that is the manipulation of physiological uh, processes Mm-hmm. manipulation of physiological processes um, men are less likely to be comfortable blushing because that's an effeminate trait right where blush for example you know, you, know you, you you kind of take a um, a synthetic control over that physiological process and so mm-hmm. you you start people start to identify that process with women more than men and then if men do it you say oh you look like a girl mm-hmm. and so ugh, the difficulty about it about toxic masculinity is it's expressing emotion and and how our body relates to that i think so you're saying that it kind of goes against nature and that's what makes it degenerative not that it goes against nature it's uh that are it does go against nature to some extent like like looking like you're sexually aroused all the time by wearing lipstick is weird <laughs> uh, if you were if, if you were to like go back 500 years um, i mean i'm sure well i'm sure not 500 5,000 years i'm sure women wore some sort of makeup back then too um but it's 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 an attempt to capture a physiological process and manipulate it um the problem is the identification uh so if you consistently see women looking like they're blushing because they're wearing blush then you're gonna think that men who blush or who get embarrassed are acting more effeminate for being embarrassed Mm. so the problem is not recognizing that that's a natural function uh, Mm. and attributing it to 
manipulation of the physiological process. Mm. So the way you're posing it, it seems as if like you're saying how uh, mostly just like dampening our natural emotions and everything and how toxic masculinity makes like hyper-masculinated men do this and just dampen their emotions. Does like this contributes to a majority of male mental illness? I think it's definitely the start of it. Like the first, I remember the first time I got embarrassed really badly. Uh, it was in the second grade. I was I was very close. To, uh, I was by the swing set, and somebody told the girl that I liked her, and I was like, "It's not true. It's not true." And I got so flustered. And I so I don't think it. I think it's definitely the start. Because then if you say, "Oh, Simon, you're you're like a little girl," and then if you say that in a pejorative sense, then it's then it's definitely uh, degenerative. But if but if we were to take away the the demeaning connotation behind you like a girl then it wouldn't mean anything right because on the surface i mean it doesn't matter but the meaning that we attach behind it it starts and it more and starts to become apparent uh in our basic physiological processes our ability to communicate emotion through our faces it starts with first being able to recognize that Mm -hmm. and so the abuse of that natural process um that definitely leads to the start of it. It's probably the hearth of all emotional, if not most emotional, issues. Mm-hmm. How is the lack of conversation on mental illness taking a toll on men? Especially, like, the lack of conversation about, like, emotion as well as, like, mental illness in general. I, I think Simon and I have a lot of experience in this. Um, not just as individuals, but with other people in general. Um, I can I can cite a specific example. I'm not going to say his name, but I'm sure we can all agree on who we kind of think um, when we think Simon's old friend. Um, if you want to go deeper into it, you can, Simon. But this individual essentially uh, was mentally ill, but he expressed it in a harmful manner to the point that it hurt others yeah and i think that the 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 lack of conversation there was well it was actually okay so this individual would would act out emotionally and that made them very talented in many aspects and so they started receiving a lot of attention for it as a lot of people do when they act out um so the convert the lack of conversation turned into praise for bad behavior and emotional malnourishment. Actually, I would say not so long ago, we saw these traits in a couple of the people we're talking with today, um, actually, and they were not only harmful to those people, but they were harmful to other people as well through that, like, specifically um, through the idea that I'm a man and I am on the football team and so obviously I need to gain weight Uh, and obviously I need to work out and I need to be the best Um, and I think that was really harmful to the individual but also to other people around them because of that hyper masculine idea it was harmful to everybody involved with them I would say. I would also argue that at one point I was affected 
by the hyper masculinity or masculine idea that I was bullying you, M, with, uh, like, good to say, Simon. We were harming you in a. We were being rude in class, essentially, because um, I, I believe we were ignorant at the time. I would say we were ignorant and we were um, kind of under the po- idea that you were weak and we were trying to. We thought we were. Hel- I thought I was helping you in my my rationalization through uh the i was manipulated by some facts and some uh emotions and some aspects from being friends with you simon and i took some aspects from you from that time and i tried to apply that to m and as a result it hurt m and it um it i'm trying to think of the word but it uh alienated you from us m i would say that uh um like that adoption of those traits, and uh, you used a word, now I don't remember what it was, um, but like the adoption of those traits and the, the idea that you were applying them to me may have not been clear to either of you, and I don't think either of you actually meant any harm by it, but um, yeah. the way that it, it was being enacted was generally, it was obviously toxic masculinity to me, like. It felt like because I was the weaker individual, I was being targeted. I think it's funny because we talk about how to be the weaker individual, and then you outranked us in the class when we graduated. So <laughs> I still proved you both wrong, but yeah, um, I think that the adoption of certain traits uh, in relationships is crucial to be talked about. You know, on the lack of conversation and in terms of relationships, I think one thing that isn't talked about about uh, masculinity is heartbreak. That's like heartbreak. I mean, we all there's pop songs, there's movies. Like it's 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 normal. We we, we see heartbreak as a normal thing, like culturally. Mm-hmm. But we do not talk about it with men. Uh, I remember seeing a good friend of mine uh, who's graduated with us. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, but um, they had they experienced someone who was very. You, in fact, we would probably all experience this to some extent, where uh, someone who is romantically interested in you uh, uh, will not leave you the hell alone. Uh, and this individual is emotionally weak. Uh, is emotional. Is constantly saying, "Oh, my ex did this, so I'm sensitive to these behaviors," or something to that extent. And this, this individual is hurting, and so they're trying to attach onto somebody else to fill that hole. One thing that we need to tell individuals who are hurting like this, especially from a hard breakup or your first breakup, is that it's okay to feel heartbreak. I remember mm-hmm. I had a really bad breakup in high school. You all were there to see it. Um, I, if someone were to tell me that, look, what you're experiencing is normal, I'd feel less crazy <laughs> uh, at the time. And I'm sure other people need to hear that, that it's okay like like we all say life goes on but for men we expect them to just be dominant and get mm-hmm. the next girl to go back to you guys' point and, and and we don't talk about how they're hurting and that leads to pathological behavior um you guys remember at the university of utah the guy who murdered that student mm-hmm. um lauren mccluskey yeah is that what his name was her, her name her name <laughs> uh she uh yeah, she didn't want to see him anymore, and, and he became violent. 
I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. that to some extent his feelings were, were similar, that he was hurting and he needed resolve and feeling alienated because uh, I, I guess the trend in society, I know I definitely saw it in my parents that you're just supposed to keep getting resources, keep acquiring women, you know, uh, in, yeah. in a very rudimentary sense. And I'm sure that uh, I wasn't the only one. And I think that might be an example of how someone's heartbreak turns into violence. I think that ultimately goes back to, like, like I said, with toxic masculinity, where it's supposed to be men can't feel anything but anger. So a lot of like it's taught into little boys that they should just be angry about this thing instead of like crying and actually expressing emotion. So it just turns into a lot of anger about like a breakup. It turns into like just raw anger instead of feeling and I don't know to go towards like the stupid stereotype of girls going and eating a pint of ice cream and crying over rom-coms. Just like instead of going through those motions and going through the actual motions of a breakup and a heartbreak and everything like that, they just immediately go to like, oh, what other word to use besides just anger and just betrayal, like a feeling of betrayal. Mm. Uh, I'd like to comment on that real quick. I remember, um, so. Uh, I didn't really grow up with my dad too much, but when I did, and when I would talk to him in times of emotional need, he he would always tell me that he's just an angry person down to the core. And I'd be like, oh, it's and in my head, I'd be like, oh, it's working for my dad, so I should try to turn my sadness into anger. And like, whenever I'd be sad, I'd be like, oh, why aren't I angry? This is what my dad would do. Um, like, these are literal thoughts I had in my head like five, six years ago. Um, but it was to no avail in my in my case. I'm not necessarily an angry person. Um, I'd like to point out that you still had these thoughts about two years ago. Your attempt in helping me through a breakout breakup was to take me into the mountains and make me throw eggs at a tree. That didn't help me at all. <laughs> See, and I and I <laughs> and I don't think that it's just like specifically male. Uh, I've always been like a masculine person. I think it's just a masculine trait in general because I know that like anytime I'm like have any sort of sadness, it just turns into anger. So I think it's not necessarily like a male thing. I think it's just a masculine thing to just bottle up everything and just turn it into anger. Why is it that anger is a masculine trait then? I think it goes with the... uh, whole thing of toxic masculinity and the whole hyper-masculinized everything where the only trait that men can show is anger without it being feminine. Does it go, I think in this case it would kind of go with that idea of dominance and uh, I would link it to the, since this is, we're all talking in the context of America and the United States, Mm -hmm. um, I would still link it back to the idea of the American dream and trying to uh, essentially become dominant in society and I think that's kind of also where it stems from but it grows from all, obviously the patriarchal ideals that have grown from the past from Europe, uh, Europe and all across the world where societies where men dominated yeah I, I think that's I think that's a really good point Preston uh, uh, something that comes to my mind I, uh, my first uh, real job was in car sales uh, yeah I was a scumbag for a summer uh, <laughs> And one thing 
that somebody pointed out to me is the need to dress up all the time. Uh, and this, I'll tie this back in in a second. So the idea behind wearing a suit to a business meeting is if you're going to invest a million dollars in somebody, they got to look like that they can handle it. they got to be dominant, so to speak. They can't be emotionally uh, weak, I guess. Uh, and I think there's definitely a lucrative uh, aspect or in terms of re- resource gathering that, that plays into anger uh, not being reflected as a natural thing but anger is a natural thing and it's not like science like like realistically speaking anger is not a male trait it's a trait that everyone has i mean hello karen i want to talk to your manager she's angry okay but but we still identify i think that's part of the problem is identifying things that are natural in all humans as particularly male or female yeah have you guys personally ever felt like pressured to conceal your mental health status and everything you're going through just because you're male all of the time I, I will argue all of the time I feel that pressure every single day now I fight that pressure and always try to be cathartic and everything try to tell people around me what, how I'm feeling but um, it's I growing up I was uh, I grew up in a single parent household where it was just my mom and my brothers I didn't really have much access to masculinity so I don't have like a really big concept of what it is but the only bits of um, toxic masculinity and masculinity that I do have stem from my grandfather who uh, I will say he uh, grew up from a time of traditional values he is a baby boomer and he is a sexist individual and that is one of the and and racist he he was he's a racist too and that's one of the i already knew a lot of his uh that's a big part of his hubris my mom even told me uh yeah that don't adopt those traits those are bad but that didn't stop it from affecting me now i also uh when i became friends with simon that's when i ended up kind of getting a better idea of what masculinity kind of was because Simon was in that state of mind where you have to be dominant, you have to be masculine in all states of everything, and <laughs> and um, that's when I started taking in those traits, and it started harming the people around me. It harmed M, it harmed my mom, it harmed uh, myself in general, and I started hiding things, uh, hiding my own emotions, and I realized, wait a minute this is wrong. I need to stop this. And when I did realize this, Simon and I kind of had a, um, a break off in friendship for a bit. And, um, it, it did help me. And I hope, I believe it helped Simon once, uh, we, um, reconciled and talked about the Simon and the hubris he had at the time. And I, I remember believe... the day, I remember the key day that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Same. I, I, re- I re- remember it very distinctly. And after that, I believe um, I've, I've personally been able to kind of push back masculinity to a point. It still affects me today, and I think it will continue affecting me until uh, since it's custom and it's still built in our culture. I'm just trying to think of specific examples because now that I'm pretty much living on my own in college, I'm a lot more relaxed. I do uh, concede to my behavior in the past. I remember wanting to to be the best at everything. I don't know if that was necessarily because I was a male thing or um, because or my state of mind. And uh, I, I got to apologize, Preston, because 
uh, me as a masculine role model is not a good idea because I myself didn't. I grew I grew up in a house of women, <laughs> so I grew up with my aunt and my mom and my uh, two younger sisters. Um, and the little exposure I had to my dad, he had very similar traits to your grandfather. So, yeah, uh, that that was definitely that was definitely an impact on our relationship uh, growth. Um, You know, I've, 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 high school was very, very difficult, uh, emotionally. I, I think it, I think it is for most teens because they're becoming more and more cognizant of the horrors in the world, mm-hmm. uh, at, and they're experiencing more and more new things. Uh, and I, I just remember uh, people not caring if I was struggling, like nobody asked oh are you okay you know uh and sort of thing um and then when i would (laughs) i did sorry i just did i asked you definitely helped me there (laughs) sure that pushback was needed um i and i remember when i did get the opportunity to to talk to an older male for, for for guidance, it, uh, it, it ended up becoming a, a weird and twisted conversation. Uh, I guess there's something more relatable about being able to talk to a male because you would expect they have similar experiences too. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my real male role model in high school, who I was around the most, was probably Henry, uh, our former director. And I remember I had a one-on-one conversation with him one day. In the in probably one of my most stressful years of high school, he would just give me the weirdest advice. Like he would he would openly suggest masturbation uh, to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he would be like he'd be like, oh, nobody wants to to work with you because you're rich and good looking. And that's what he'd say, and I'd be like, Henry, what are you talking about? What are you even talking about? I live in the poorest town in Utah. And, <laughs> and he would just give me, I guess, maybe maybe what he thought I wanted to hear. But um, there, there was definitely a twisted sense to it and uh, a sociological approach to everything, all the advice he was saying. It was like a means to an end. It was them against you, or you against them, um, and it was it. And I wasn't allowed to to make valid complaints to the principal or anything, mm-hmm. or to the police in some instances. From what I experienced, uh, he, that was never an option for me. You know, but I know of other people who experienced uh, abuse as well in in our theater department, and they were able to. Uh, properly play the role of the victim right? to go through that emotion um, I just remember that being a very firm constant feeling all throughout high school that I was never allowed to to, to feel like a victim and you know something in my head tells me well maybe Simon you were just a dickhead and that's why you weren't allowed to, to feel like a victim but mm-hmm. thinking saying that again it, maybe it's because I was so focused on being dominant and masculine that I felt like a Oh, I know. And these are questions that, happily, I feel like no longer have too much prevalence on my life, but still are crucial to developing young men. 
I remember specifically in high school, Simon, you, up until, like, senior year, after we actually started to connect and after you started to finally break down your hyper-dominance, I need to be male, masculine, dominant, you started to become, not to sound shitty, you started to become, like, a better person. Just because you did start to break down those, I don't have to be hyper-masculine and you can actually talk about your feelings. Because I remember even earlier, like, before senior year even started, you were very much like, nope, can't talk about this, don't want to talk about this. Because I often talked to you, I was like, how are you doing, are you doing okay? And you often... I remember a few instances, yes. Yeah, and you were like, nope, I'm fine, don't worry about it until finally you finally just started to realize that you're okay to talk to somebody about how you're feeling and you're okay to show emotion and you're okay to actually be the victim and you're okay to actually talk about how you're feeling and what you're doing and how that's all making you feel as a whole and you just started to become like a better person for it mostly and you started to become like somebody that actually expressed emotion making you a better person to myself and to other people exactly two sides of it it was about that same time i think it might have it might have been a sequential process little nudges here to to be more human that i started to i started to to question the world around me i was like uh, I was specifically questioned what made people successful because uh, uh, I, I always had a keen interest on whatever business is going on in the world. America's business is business, so to speak. Uh, and I, I would look at the traits of successful businessmen and I'd be like, well, why, why are they drinking all the time? Why are they smoking cigars? And, and why are they sleeping with women that aren't their wives? Like, is that what you really have to do to be successful? And, like, a part of me just started to hate that. And I was like, well, I can't be successful if I don't want to do those things. And this is was, this was a recent thought. I mean, it, it sounds childish, but, but when that's all you see in the world as, as a successful person, as someone who's doing these things, it, it makes you question, like, what is this apparently divine archetype of a successful person doing? And, and if I want to be a successful person, what does that mean? And so I think it was definitely through a process of slowly... Uh, opening up and, and experiencing more healing conversations and relationships that uh, I started to become a better person to myself mm-hmm. and to others and start to reject some of the notions that I know uh, that I knew of, of as success. And I remember I uh, shadowed my dad one day. My dad was a sales manager. Uh, and I shadowed him uh, in my junior year of high school and I was talking with one of his subordinates and this guy goes, oh, you're in high school? Oh, man, you should be having sex with everybody. That's what I'd be doing in high school. And I didn't know how to feel about that. I thought that was, A, a little pedophilic, because this guy's, like, probably 50. Uh, and, and and B, I was, like, I was really disturbed. I was like, well, do I have to be? Is that what makes a successful, a, someone a successful person? Um, but, the, but then I started, then I completely rejected such notions. And it's definitely up to the individual and uh, then, be- then I, I think I started to gain a, a keen philosophical interest in morality, and I think that's why I'm here today studying philosophy, is mm-hmm. through healing conversations and relationships that I've had with people, thanks to everyone on this call. Do you think it begins? 
where do you think toxic masculinity like really begins what do you think is key force in society i think it's parenting but uh most definitely it's parenting as well as like the way media portrays males and everything so like especially with like the generations now like not the younger generations but like our age and a little bit older than us and everything they are all on this spectrum of some sort of toxic masculinity just because all of the media from like the 80s to the early 2010s and all that it always posed this like hyper masculine like father figure or like male figure and it was always like you have to be like this man to like be the perfect family man that type of thing but like you look at younger generations and they're more comfortable like you look at younger males and they're more comfortable in their affinity because of shows like like Queer Eye and it shows that like because like the show Queer Eye it shows that uh, you can really become a feminine version of yourself and not lose that masculinity that you have like you look at stars like Jonathan Van Ness and sure he's gay and he's like dresses effeminately but he also has this wonderful beard and he's always like very into oh this is how I show my masculinity but this is also how I show my feminine side and you can do this and you can do anything you want and show this feminine side as well as this masculine side and show that you are who you are and you don't have to be one side or the other. Like, things like that. So it's just better role models for the younger generations that, like, show that masculinity isn't, like, a necessarily needed thing. There's actually an interesting article that I read the other day, uh, about a week ago, by Paul Allen Beck. And it's about this interesting notion or this observation he has of when a... It's about it's about the Democratic uh, nomination back in uh, 1954, or about the 1950s. Um, with the younger generation, they're willing to... Like, at that time, the younger generation were very pro a... Uh, very expungent, a very uh, kind of a radical... Uh, Democratic nominee at the time who was a little bit radical and not a part of the establishment of the Democratic Party at that time. But as time went on and they went to a further 19, about the 1980s when these individ same people who supported this um, radical individual uh, at when, when they were in their 40s and 50s now, now they're supporting the establishment and they're not supporting um, any change and any different differences within the Democratic Party. And what, what, where you take, what you take out of this is as generations grow old, they become less um, inclined to change. So um, as you can see, we look at the, the example of the Vietnam War. The people who are now traditionalists today, the baby boomers, etc., etc., were the people who were trying to were fighting to end the Vietnam War. They were part of the hippie movement. They were part of that entire time of fighting against the Vietnam War, and they were very nonconformity, and they were um, part of the anti—I uh, can't think of the word, but the—you know what I mean. They're mm -hmm. the anti-social movement, essentially. They were against the Vietnam War. They were for change and for peace, um, how do we ch bring change as a younger generation if eventually we're going to be traditionalists? 
Oh, I think that's a really good question, and I, I, I wanted to, I wanted, I think this links everything together that I just said. So on Eli's point that, um, I'm not sure, what was, can you repeat the star's name? Uh, Jonathan Van Ness. Jonathan Van Ness, and uh, how, you, you used him as an example of how you can show whatever side of yourself that you want to uh, nowadays. And I think pe- people get worried, both liberals and conservatives get worried that, oh, we're going to destroy the fabric of society if people stop having traditional families and stop doing traditional things. Uh, but I live very close to New York City now, and what I've seen is that people can express themselves however they want, and you can still have of an economic supercapital of the world. I, I think one thing that we have to remind ourselves when we get old is that we can still be wealthy, happy, and prosperous with social change. History has shown this. Right. Um, so I just, bringing up like the idea that, uh, when you mentioned the idea that success has always been closely tied to drugs and alcohol for you, I think it's interesting to mention that men are actually three times more likely to become alcohol dependent than women. Um, but also, I think we're already seeing a change start to happen, and maybe it's really slow. But like, if we go to the really popular uh, Marvel universe, you see a huge change in the way they uh, treat and have the stress acted out, even in the characters themselves. So, for instance, in Iron Man 1, which was released in 2008, um, Tony Stark is hella alcohol-dependent. In Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2, uh, which came out in 2010, um, he is alcohol-dependent, supposed uh, drug-dependent, like, he is completely substance-dependent because he's so stressed and he doesn't talk about it and he doesn't... Uh, do anything about it and you actually see that in the movies corrupt his relationship um, to the point where it's it's unreconcilable Um, but then we see this change happen when the Avengers comes out in 2012 and you don't see the alcohol dependency and you don't see like the way that they're talking about it Um, and so it, it just like even though we're not outwardly fostering a change I think we're still seeing a change in the way we're talking about it and the way we're treating it. Alcohol dependency isn't looked at as, oh, that's everything. Every man does that. Every man drinks every Saturday. Every man has a beer with dinner. Um, I don't think we see that as much as we used to. Um, And so I definitely think the conversation is changing. We're talking more about our stress than we used to. And I think um, the way we're talking about it is actually what needs to change because we use these emotion filled words to talk about our mental health we talk about how i'm feeling depressed or i'm feeling anxious or i'm feeling this and feeling this um when men are much more used to to being like yeah i'm stressed it's whatever and so i think that's where we need to take the pivotal moment and change and talk about how change is perpetuated through the way that we converse about it so is that the solution i think that's the solution I think there's definitely, uh, that's a definitely good approach to solution. Uh, I just really quick, I'll, you reminded me of this thing, and it's exactly a stereotype of every man drinks beer every Saturday. There's this old Family Guy skit where it's black and white, and it's set in the 50s, and this guy walks into a, walks into a bar or whatever, a little diner, 
And he goes, eh, can I get a steak and fries? And the, and the, and the bartender goes, you want a side of cigarettes with that? And the guy goes, what do I look like, a pansy? Of course I want a side of cigarettes with that. <laughs> you know, so it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so cool. what do you guys think, if there is a solution, what it is? Um, I was probably the one who did the most research about what the solution is. Um, but I definitely, through what I've read, think that the solution is the way that we communicate about our mental health. Um, because so many men are suffering from mental illness and so many men uh, do end up committing suicide, uh, completed suicide rate is 70% for men. Like, 70% of completed suicides are men. Um, and so I think the way that we need to approach it, at least for now, is through the way we communicate about it. Because men are more likely to be uh, willing to talk about what they're stressed about than they are about what's making them feel stressed. Um, so I think these feel words are what lead to men struggling through mental illness without seeking help. Uh, I really liked your focus on how, on the actual ways we describe these things. Uh, I also think we have to be strategic in, in dealing with them. And so to specify a bit, I pulled from Carl Rogers, the founder founder or one of the one of the greatest scholars on uh direct client directed therapy or humanist therapy a lot of names for it uh one of the one of the conditions required for successful therapeutic change is um the therapist experiences an empathetic understanding of the client's internal frame of reference we have to put ourselves in their shoes i mean it sounds really simple but but we have to bring it back to to verify these things. And we have this excellent scholar on this issue. And through the willingness, uh, through understanding somebody else's internal frame of reference and then going through the other con core conditions he stated, uh, being congruence and empathy. Congruence is the willingness to transparently relate without hiding behind a professional personal facade. And then to be empathetic, to to desire to understand and appreciate uh, somebody else's perspective. And these are easier said than done. But I think through being specific in how we describe things and taking things and taking a mental illness from a strategic per perspective or uh, through a strategic layout, um, we can definitely start to heal uh, the degenerative nature of not just toxic masculinity, but toxic society. Mm. Uh. Uh. <laughs> um, how I would frame this is I kind of frame it around how I believe John Stuart Mill would respond to this, as I quoted him at the beginning and quoted him at the end. Um, John Stuart Mill would say that in order to bring about social progress, we have to be non-conforming. Non-conforming is the essential way to bring in social progress. And the problem here is, the problem we need to solve is that society and the majority of people are essentially limiting the liberty of people to be able to express themselves and be able to, uh, essentially males, to express themselves emotionally and talk about mental illness or mental health. 
And with that being said, um, the it's easier said than done, obviously. But you have to you have to be the outlier. You have to go against the norms of what society says is a male. And it's it's I know it sounds stereotypical or not stereotypical, but like um, not. Uh, what's the word a lot of debaters like to use about arguments? It's, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Simon, uh, uh, I, I just think it, it, it sounds almost cliche, but it's, it has merit to it. It's uh, not unique. <laughs> um, it's, uh, people would say that's probably not unique and it's cliche, but with that being said, uh, most social problems have been brought about, and a lot of social problems have been solved and changed as a result of being outliers. Um, you can look at the examples of women's rights. You have people like Sarah, the Grimke sisters, and you have uh, the Declaration of um, Sentiments, and you have all these individuals going against what the social norms are to bring about social change. And to allow for women's rights to be brought up and almost cli- not climaxing, but uh, bringing about the to fruition. success of the 19th Amendment. Mm. So 100 and, year anniversary. Hmm? 100 year anniversary this week. Exactly. <laughs> it is. And that's a, an achievement that was brought about by outliers. And we can even look at the civil rights movement and look at uh, African Americans. And you have these people who are going and... Uh, just sitting down in restaurants where white people were essentially only allowed, but you have African Americans sitting down and refusing to leave. And they weren't conforming to what the rules said. And when society did fight back, while society will always push back against the rules, you have to stand your ground. And there's always, and that's the big thing about democracy, there's always going to be sacrifice involved with it. And I would say to bring about social change, there needs to be that sacrifice of not conforming with what society's rules dictate. And if you want to bring real social change, don't conform. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's getting easier or harder, real quick, to uh, to enact change? No, it's always been hard. Always. always and it hard. always will be. Yeah, definitely yeah. hard. But it's just going to be one of those things that, like, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of social change and it will be hard. It might take a while, but I'm sure it will happen and it will become better in the future. But that's been our conversation. Uh, Eli. M. Preston. Simon. Uh, until later. Bye then. <laughs> I'll keep saying. <laughs>